Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Philip Yancey, uh, the writer upon whose book, uh, Disappointment with God, we have based this sermon series. Well, Philip Yancey, of course, he's an author by vocation. Uh, He's a prolific writer. And so on one occasion, he had the chance to visit Peru on a writing assignment. And the missionary pilot that he was with brought him to a small village where a group of indigenous people lived. The village was fairly remote. It was located deep in the jungle. It took an airplane ride, a boat ride, and then a long walk just to get there. Well, when the two of them got to this village, the missionary pilot showed Philip Yancey this thriving 40-year-old church, this church that was doing incredibly well, reaching out, connecting with people. But in addition to showing him the church, the missionary pilot also showed Philip Yancey a granite marker just off the main path. And then he told him the story of the missionary who helped found that church. This missionary had come to Peru with his wife 40 years earlier. And while they were there, uh, the wife became pregnant, and she gave birth to this beautiful little boy. They were so excited. They so wanted to be parents. But then, unfortunately, this little boy got sick, got a fever. And then when he was only six months old, He died after a sudden onset of vomiting, which just about drove that young missionary over the edge. They had a funeral. They buried the baby's body. The man took a local stone, and he hewed on that stone a marking, put it by the grave, and then he planted a tree right beside all that. Well, every single day after that, when the sun was most hot, and everybody else in the village would seek shade. This missionary would take a jug, he would go to the river, he would fill the jug with water, and then he would make that long walk back to the tree, and he would water it. And then he would just stand there by the grave. Sometimes he would pray. Sometimes he would cry. Other times he would just be there with this blank expression on his face, frozen solid, not really knowing what to do. His wife and people from the church tried their best to console him and comfort him, but nothing really seemed to work. And then later, that missionary himself got sick, and so he was forced to go back home with his wife earlier than they had intended. Not exactly the most uplifting story, is it? I don't claim to know what that missionary prayed as he stood beside his son's grave, but it's not hard to imagine that at some point he probably thought, Where's God? Where is God? Here I brought my family to this village to share the love of Jesus Christ, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Here I've dedicated my life, and not just myself, but my wife has too. Here we've dedicated our lives to the ministry. Is this the thanks we get? The fact that we'll never see our little boy grow up? 
Suffering itself is pretty terrible. But I am convinced, in the depth of who I am, that what makes suffering even more intolerable and unbearable is suffering in what seems like the silence of God. Suffering in what seems like the silence of God. Suffering in those moments of pain and hurt and agony and desperation. We cry out to God. We're on our knees. We're praying to God. And it's as if we don't get any kind of response. Either God is not there, or if God is there, God seems to be ignoring us. And so that's what I want to talk about today as we launch into part two of our three-part sermon series that we're calling Disappointment with God. Again, the sermon series is based on a book by Philip Yancey of the same name. Uh, I would encourage you uh, to purchase that book. It's a really great resource, uh, just a great, great tool to have. But in that book, uh, the subtitle is Three Questions That No One Asks Aloud. According to Philip Yancey, all of our disappointments with God boil down to three questions that most of us are too afraid to ask. Number one, is God hidden? Number two, is God silent? And then number three, is God unfair? Is God hidden? Is God silent? And is God unfair? So last week, uh, we kicked off this series. We looked at that first question, is God hidden? This morning, we come to the second question, is God silent? I want to acknowledge that a lot of people over the years have wrestled with this question. For example, C.S. Lewis. You ever heard of C.S. Lewis before? Prolific writer, uh, one of the premier lay theologians of the last 100 years, authored a number of books. Uh, he was also a professor of uh, literature at Oxford University. C.S. Lewis wrote the much-beloved Chronicles of Narnia series. Maybe you've read those books or maybe you've seen the movies based on those books. He also wrote uh, Mere Christianity, A Grief Observed, The Screwtape Letters, among many other books. Well, what some people don't know about C.S. Lewis is that he experienced a great deal of tragedy. What happened was his wife, Joy, passed away when she was only 45 years old, just 45 years old from a rare disease. And what made that situation even more painful is that he felt as if God was not there to comfort him. This is what C.S. Lewis said at one point. Uh, these words are up here on the screen. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, you will be, or so it feels, walking with open arms. But go to him. In other words, go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. This is C.S. Lewis. He has led thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ through his writings. Even after his death, he has still led people to faith in Jesus Christ uh, through his writings. And yet even C.S. Lewis struggled with the apparent silence of God, and I know that he's not alone. The truth is that this whole question that we're examining today, is God silent? Well, just like the question we looked at last time about God's hiddenness, this whole question, is God silent, is not a new question. It's not a modern question. People have literally been asking this question for thousands of years. It's one of the oldest questions of the universe. And it's actually a question that one of the oldest books of the Bible takes up. And that would be the book of Job. The book of Job. 
So let me summarize that book for us for just a few moments. So the Old Testament tells the story of a man named Job. Job was a guy who had everything. He had a beautiful wife, loving children, incredible wealth, untold success. This guy really had it all. He was the kind of guy that we would be envious of. But then one day, Job suddenly loses pretty much everything because of a wager that happens in heaven between God and the adversary. In other words, Satan. The story goes like this. At the beginning of Job, God is in heaven. He's overlooking creation. He's admiring the world. When suddenly, Satan comes to God looking for something to complain about. He's been lurking around on the earth. He's been following people. And so, as Satan comes to God, God says to him, well, have you seen my servant Job? Have you considered Job? There's nobody else on earth like him. He fears me, loves me, obeys me, worships me. He really is a stand-up and commendable person. And Satan says to God, well, of course Job does all that. You've put this hedge of protection around him. He hasn't experienced pain or suffering or hurt or betrayal. If he were to lose what he has, he would certainly turn his back on you. Uh, so in our house, Amanda and I have two dogs, um, Teddy and Nala. Uh, Teddy and Nala uh, came with us. Uh, they got to be in our house just a few months after we got married. Uh, at the time, they had been fostered uh, by some people at the church we were serving. And actually, Teddy and Nala are special to us because they were born uh, literally the day after we got married. So they've pretty much been with us from the beginning of our, uh, our marriage. And Teddy and Nala, oftentimes, when we're at the house, they will follow us from room to room. Anybody else have a dog like that? You probably don't have a cat like that, but maybe you have a dog like that. Just follows you from room to room. Doesn't matter if we're in the kitchen, the living room, one of the bedrooms, the backyard. Teddy and Nala are right there with us. In fact, it's impossible for us to get a picture if they're around us without Teddy or Nala or both of them. I got an example of this. I have two examples of this. But Teddy or Nala or both of them also being in the pictures. So I remember one day I said to Amanda, wow, these dogs, they, they follow us around. They really love us. They really care about us. And Amanda, who maybe is more cynical or maybe was just more realistic in that moment, she said, well, is it that they love us or is it because we feed them <laughs> and they're looking for something else to eat? Listen, I know that's not a really sophisticated analogy, but that's basically the response that Satan, the adversary, gives to God. This is all quid pro quo. The only reason Job is with you is because you've given him all this stuff, all these blessings. If he were to lose all that, he would immediately turn his back on you. And so with God's permission, we could take those pictures down. That's <laughs> all right. It's kind of distracting for me. Uh, but with God's permission, thank you so much, uh, Satan puts Job through a test. The first thing that happens is Satan manipulates certain events, uh, causing all these natural disasters to occur causing Job to lose uh, his livestock, animals, uh, his servants, and even his children later on. They too pass away. Meanwhile, Job is on earth. He has no idea what's happening. In fact, Philip Yancey points out in his book that the story of Job reads like a play. Is anybody into plays? Uh, the action is not just going on in one location. The action is taking place in how many locations? Two of them. You have the upper stage, that would be heaven, and then you have the lower stage, and that would be earth. So the characters on earth, including Job, 
they have no idea of what's happening in heaven. Now, as the reader, we're privy to this information. Uh, we know about this dialogue between God and the adversary, but Job doesn't know about all that. And so when Job begins to lose everything, he naturally assumes that God is the one who's responsible. He has this line where he says, you've probably heard it before, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. By the way, that statement is uttered in ignorance. God never takes anything away from Job. The accuser does all that. The adversary does all that. But Job is under that understanding. Yet even so, believing that God is doing all this, Job does not turn on God. He does not give up on God. And so what happens later on, again, God is in heaven, looking over the world. Satan comes back to God. And God says, well, you were wrong about Job. That guy continues to stick by me. And Satan says, well, he still has his good health. If he were to lose his good health, he would turn on you in a moment. And so God allows Satan to put Job through another test. The next thing that happens is Job receives boils, these horrendous boils all up and down his body from his head to his foot. His body is completely riddled with boils. So in addition to losing his livelihood, his children, Job also loses his good health. He pretty much has nothing left to hold on to. In fact, at one point, Job's wife says to him, why are you still here? Why are you still hanging on? Just curse God and die. Job's wife does not have the gift of what we would call spiritual encouragement. <laughs> Just curse God and die. But Job refuses to curse God. But in his heart, he's struggling. In his heart, he's hurting. He's calling out to God. He's praying to God. And just like C.S. Lewis when he lost his wife, and probably like that missionary when he lost his little boy, Job feels as if God does not respond to him. Listen to what it says here in Job chapter 30, verse 20. This is Job speaking. I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. And here's the thing we have to recognize. Job is not entirely wrong here. When we consider the book of Job in its entirety, Job is not a small book. It's, it's pretty good size. It's 42 chapters long. But for the first 37 chapters, we have no record of God speaking except when God is speaking to Satan, the adversary. In other words, for the first 37 chapters of this 42-chapter book, God doesn't say a single word to poor Job. For Job, the fog has descended. He has no clue of what's happening. He, he's looking for some semblance, some sign of God's presence, but all he gets in return is confusion and uncertainty. And as difficult as this is for me to say, and even more difficult to accept, it often seems, folks, that confusion and uncertainty are the perfect training ground to test and develop faith. It often seems, doesn't it, that confusion and uncertainty are the perfect training ground to test and develop faith. Remember, the whole point of this wager was to do what? It was to assess Job's faith, to see how strong his faith was. So if God had intervened, as Job wanted God to, and then delivered this inspiring pep talk, hey, Job, hang in there do this, and you'll be okay in the end. Well, then Job would have endured, knowing that in the end, 
everything would ultimately be okay. But Satan had challenged whether Job's faith was strong enough to withstand the whole ordeal with no outside help or explanation. And as it turns out, God was right. Satan was wrong. Despite spouting off some angry prayers, Job stubbornly sticks by God. He refuses to let go of God. You see, Job has the kind of faith that Philip Yancey in his book characterizes as fidelity. Fidelity. Can you all say that word with me? Fidelity. Fidelity is the deepest level of faith there is. Fidelity is the kind of faith where we hold on to God no matter what. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how tough it gets, even in seasons of doubt and uncertainty, usually brought about by suffering, we're calling out to God, we're crying out to God, we can't feel God, we can't sense God, but we persistently and defiantly and stubbornly hold on to God. And fidelity stands in stark contrast to the kind of faith that falls apart when life isn't going well. Somebody loses a job and says, well, why should I bother with God? Or perhaps somebody goes through a divorce and says, well, that's just proof that God doesn't love me. Should I even put up with God? I want to be clear, folks. I am not trying to trivialize or belittle suffering. I am not trying to trivialize or belittle suffering. I get it. Suffering is terrible. It's awful. When we're going through suffering, it really, really stinks. Amen? And I also don't believe that God is the author of our suffering. God was not the author of Job's suffering. Job thought that God was the author of his suffering, but Satan was behind all that. I don't believe that God is the author of our suffering either. I think suffering is just a part of life. It's a sign that we live in a broken world, a world that has not yet been fully redeemed by our God of love. None of us are immune from the effects of suffering. It doesn't matter if you're a follower of God, not a follower of God, if you're a Christian, not a Christian. It doesn't matter what your background is. None of us are immune from the effects of suffering. But here's what I am trying to say. Suffering can and usually does show the true colors of our faith. Suffering can and usually does show the quality of our faith, how deep our faith runs. Do we have fidelity? Do we have the kind of faith where we hold on to God no matter how tough it gets? Or do we have the kind of faith that falls apart under life storms? When I think of somebody who exudes fidelity, one of the first persons who comes to mind for me, and I think I've mentioned this before in a sermon, but one of the first persons who comes to mind for me is a friend and a mentor of mine. His name is Mike Fordham. Uh, Mike serves uh, Killarn United Methodist Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, he got there in 2015, so he's been there for about seven years. But before Mike was at Killarn, for 12 years, from 2003 to uh, 2015, he was the senior pastor of Community United Methodist Church in Fruitland Park, Florida, uh, over by the Leesburg area, uh, just over an hour from here. And I was Mike's associate pastor for three years, from 2012 to 2015. I served alongside him. Uh, the church was growing, it was doing well, and so I was brought in to help Mike out 
and he really helped me out. Uh, he was a, a good friend and mentor. And even after I left the church and became a senior pastor on my own, I would still call Mike. I still call Mike from time to time and I ask him for his advice as I encounter some, some leadership dilemmas. In fact, Mike is such a good friend of mine that when Amanda and I got married in 2016, uh, we'll be celebrating our six-year anniversary this month, but when we got married, Mike presided over Holy Communion at our wedding. Let me share Mike's story with you. Mike and his wife, Terry, got married. Uh, they were pretty young, early 20s. I believe that they had, either they were still in college or they had just finished college. And yet when Terry was only 45 years old, the same age as C.S. Lewis's wife, when C.S. Lewis's wife died, Terry also passed away. This was in 2010. It was the strangest thing. One day, Terry was playing a game of tennis. It was early in the week, Monday, Tuesday. She was with somebody in the church, and after the game was over, she wasn't feeling all that well, so she went home to lie down. She got up the next morning. She wasn't feeling that much better, so eventually she went to urgent care. Urgent care didn't really know what was going on. They sent her home with some medication, but medication didn't do anything. She just got worse and worse. So then finally she went to the emergency room, and then before the family knew it, she was in the ICU on life support. And then shortly after that, Terry died on Saturday night. Again, she got sick Monday or Tuesday. She was dead by Saturday. 45 years old, incredibly fit, healthy. She died because of complications due to pneumonia. Understandably, Mike was devastated. He was heartbroken. He was grief-stricken. And not just Mike, but also their four kids. Amanda, Lindsay, Sean, Rebecca. Amanda's the oldest. She was in college at FSU. Rebecca's the youngest. She was in middle school, 13 years old or so. Mike took about a month off from his responsibilities at the church. And then he came back to doing the work that God had called him to do. It wasn't easy. It was difficult. In fact, when I came to the church in 2012, two years later, Mike was still in the thick of grief. There would be times I would be with him in his office or he would be in a meeting and we would be talking and all of a sudden he would say something, it would trigger a memory, an emotion, and he would just start to cry. Or other times he'd be preaching his sermon on a Sunday morning to the congregation and he would call to mind a memory of Terry and he would start to cry. And the congregation allowed him to do that. They gave him that space because they knew how important that was for the grieving process. Never once, never once did Mike Fordham give up on God. Mike has fidelity. He has the kind of faith that I think Jesus was speaking about when Jesus said these words in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, Jesus is saying that when I return to earth, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, will Jesus find fidelity? Will he find fidelity from you? Will he find fidelity from me? Will he find those who refuse to let go of God even when it seems as if God is ignoring us? Folks, let's be honest. There are situations that happen and it seems as if God is not there. Somebody dies of cancer, a surgery doesn't go as planned, 
a friend is killed in a car accident. And then on top of that, there are those seasons we pray, we call out to God from the depth of who we are, and it does seem as if God is ignoring us. So let me assure us of a few things this morning. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. Just a few things. Number one, God is not ignoring us. I could not be more emphatic about that. God is not ignoring us. God was not ignoring Job. God might not have responded to Job right away, but God was not ignoring him. God saw every tear. He heard every cry. He heard every prayer. There might have been a time in which God was silent, but God was not absent. And that's true for us too. Number two, that God is never absent from us. In fact, in Jesus Christ, God makes the promise to always be with us. Some of the last words that Jesus ever spoke were in Matthew chapter 28, just before the ascension. Jesus said, be sure of this, I am with you always. Not I am with you some of the time or most of the time. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. There is never a moment, there is never a time in which God and Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is not with us. And then finally, number three. There will come a day in the future in which God will make everything right. The darkness of Good Friday gave way to the light of Easter Sunday. Or as the psalmist puts it so beautifully in Psalm 30, though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes in the morning. Joy is on the horizon for those who hope in God, even in the hard seasons. I think this is actually part of the reason why Jesus, when he was with us on earth, a big part of Jesus' public ministry involved performing miracles. Remember, Jesus performed all kinds of miracles during his three years of public ministry. He healed people. He cast out their demons. Jesus' miracles give us a foretaste of that future day when all things will be made right. The way I like to think about this is when I was a kid, we're talking about moms on Mother's Day. I had a great mom. Still have a great mom who's now in heaven with God. But my mom would be in the kitchen and she would be making some sort of dessert. Cookies, brownies, something like that. Anybody getting hungry right now? And so she would have her mixing bowl. I'm sure you have a mixing bowl in your kitchen. And she would take all the ingredients, put the ingredients in the mixing bowl, the flour, the sugar, the cookie dough, things like that, the eggs. And then she would have her egg beater and it would stir around. And then just before she put everything in the oven, my mom would give me the egg beater that had those ingredients. Anybody remember those days? Are some of you still in those days? And I would lick the ingredients off the egg beater. Now those ingredients, that was not the dessert, right? The dessert was on the way. The dessert was far better. But those ingredients, they gave me a sense of how good that dessert was going to be. Jesus' miracles and the Gospels give us a foretaste of that future day when all things will be made right. We long for that day. We crave for that day. But until that day happens, and we don't know when it's going to happen, but until that day happens, we continue to hold on to God with a faith marked by fidelity, this stubborn refusal to let go. I end my sermon this morning uh, with these words from Rabbi Abraham Heschel, uh, a 20th century rabbi. This is what he said about Job. He said, faith like Job's cannot be shaken because it is the result of having been shaken. 
Faith like Job's cannot be shaken because it is the result of having been shaken. Folks, life is going to shake our faith. It's not a question of if, but when. When it happens, may you and I be like Job, still persisting, still holding on. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for people like Job, C.S. Lewis, that missionary that we spoke about, Mike Fordham, people who continue to hold on to you, even in those hard and difficult moments, and what their example teaches us. God, there's so much mystery to suffering. We don't fully comprehend why we go through these hard seasons. We don't have all the answers. But God, help us to cling to the truth that you are not ignoring us, that you are not absent, and that eventually you will make everything right. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.